Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church New Bern podcast. My name is Paul Scott Sherditsky, and I am one of your hosts. I am joined by Marin this week. Hey, Marin. Hi, Paul Scott. Happy Friday. It's Friday Happy when we're, Friday. we're recording it. We just recorded the sermon for Sunday. Our listeners, you'll be listening to this on Monday. Uh, it's kind of calm at the church this week, right? We're in ordinary time. We're in it's ordinary summer. time. It's summertime. Uh, services are still at just 10 a.m., right? That's correct. And if you have listened to our podcast last week, Anna and I, we broke the big news. We didn't actually break the story because it was emailed, I think, to the entire congregation. That's true. But the big story is, Marin, you are moving. Yeah. What's it, up with that? It's bittersweet. Yeah, we're... Jeff's taken a new job in South Carolina, so we're moving at the end of July. I uh, joked with you before, my father was a pharmacist like Jeff, and I don't know what's up with these guys, but they like move around a lot. You moved around a lot. Yeah, people always <laughs> think I'm military because I lived in South Dakota and Iowa and Missouri and Florida, and then I, as an adult, I moved around a lot too, and they're always like, are you military? I'm like, no. No. My dad's a pharmacist. pharmacist. <laughs> Uh, so that's exciting. You guys go to South Carolina like on vacation and stuff, right? We so have done. You'll yeah. Like it. What's up with this town of Anderson? Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful little city, very similar to New Bern. So we're excited. I was thinking when you were preaching today, like, does it feel weird? Like it's your because you're not gonna you're not gonna preach when you get there right away, right? So now these sermons gonna, that you're doing we're gonna now. We're going to set a little, yeah, there's a little bit of, yeah, again, it's a little bittersweet. Yeah, a little last bittersweet. Ser- last sermons for a while. When I knew I was, uh, as a teacher, when I knew I was leaving schools, it was like those last lessons, like I was, they kind of felt different. They were, they're, they, they're full of meaning, yeah. So this summer, um, I thought I'd, I always like to kind of bring uh, people maybe who just jumped in or maybe just came to a service in real life or just tuned into our YouTube try to bring them into what's going on this summer. So there's a summer sermon series. A summer sermon series. I don't know if that's what we call yeah, it. Yeah, it's like on the, the stories that are left out of the Revised Common Lectionary. So many churches follow the Revised Common Lectionary because it gives you a set of readings that repeat every three years. So you get through the Bible mostly in about three years. But there are some stories that are left out. So this summer, we're focusing on some of those stories. Does uh, other churches, so you're meaning like Presbyterian churches, or, do you, or is it like all oh, the churches? Lots of churches. Like, Lutheran, Catholic, that's uh, thing. Methodist, yeah. The lectionary. The, the revised, lectionary. Revised common lectionary. That's right. Okay, cool. And Anna, um, yeah, I guess the past two sermon. is this the third one? I think that's right, yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, interesting. So uh, this was about Cain and Abel. Yeah. Which I thought would be kind of a popular story. It seems like it a seems kind like of would, a bedrock story. But, but it's not in the common lectionary? It's not in the common lectionary. Weird. Um, what's it all about? What's going on? Give me the cliff notes. Oh, well, I feel like folks should listen to the sermon. But basically, it's a, it's sort of a, a new look at Cain to see maybe what we might have in common with him so that we, rather than demonize him, we might have some compassion and humility as we read the story. It would make sense that that is the point of the story more than what I think people have thought over the years, right? 
That would make sense. Well, everyone, we don't want to keep you from the sermon because it's a good one. Uh, Marin preaching about Cain and Abel in our summer sermon series, our series of sermons this summer. This summer. Oh, well done. I'm working. <laughs> on, I'm, I'm worried it's catchy and we're working on it. So everyone, we hope you have a great week. Enjoy this sermon and we will talk to you again next week. Here we go. As we prepare now to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Your word, O Lord, is our inspiration, our light, and our motion. Your word, O Lord, is power, wisdom, and comfort. Guide us today as we listen to the word read and proclaimed and fill us with understanding and with the desire to change. Speak, Lord. Your people listen. Amen. There are two theories about the origin of the word religion. So one of them says that it comes from the Latin word religare, religare, from the verb ligare, meaning to bind or attach. So religare means to be bound again, to reattach. We are bound to a set of beliefs, a set of teachings, bound to a set of scriptures, bound to a particular beloved community, to a particular group of people. And I like, I like this approach because it reflects the experience of so many of us when it comes to our faith. We are bound to our faith at, at certain points in our lives, maybe at baptism or at confirmation, when we get married, when we have children. And then we have these, these periods of time when, when those attachments don't feel as strong, when God feels far away from us, when, when we feel distant from worship, when we experience a loss or a struggle, a diagnosis, when the church has hurt us. But then, then there is a, a rebinding, a reattaching a coming home, a return to what is life-giving, a return to what is saving our souls. So wrapped up in this understanding of religion is this dynamic nature of our faith, the, the seasons, the ebbs and the flows, the, the attaching and the reattaching. So that is one understanding of the origin of the word religion. There is another theory, an ancient one, from the philosopher Cicero. It is that the word religion comes from the Latin word relegare, from the verb legare, meaning to read. So relegare means to reread, to read again. And it reminds us that we are people shaped by an ongoing encounter with the word of God in scripture, in the Bible. We read and reread the Bible because this is where God speaks to us. We read and reread because the Bible is a living word for us. One of my favorite images of, of reading the Bible comes from the writings of a, an ancient rabbi. And he imagines the Bible like a, a cut jewel. You turn it over and over, reading and rereading, seeing the light shine in different ways through its many facets. 
When I was working on my doctoral research, I had a group of volunteers who agreed to be my, my research subjects. I had them read a set of verses and tell me what they meant to them. It was a process for me of, of understanding how they read scripture, how they interpreted the words, how the meaning came to them. So one man said to me, I believe that God's word is without error, error and eternal and unchanging, but also I, I write notes in the margins of my Bible as I read. And then I go back five years later and I reread that part of the Bible and I read my notes and what the words means for me has changed. How can that be? This is why we read and reread because the Holy Spirit speaks through these words in new ways for these, these new horizons of our lives. The idea of rereading is the reason for being of the Revised Common Lectionary, which we largely follow here each Sunday in worship. It is a cycle of readings over three years that is meant to be sure, to make sure that we, we hear most of the Bible over the course of three years, and then it repeats the same three years over and over again. And this is a good thing for us, except, except, that certain stories are left out of the Revised Common Lectionary. So unless we encounter them in a, a Sunday school class or, or in our own personal Bible reading, we might never hear them. Which is why I'm so glad we're doing uh, this sermon series on the stories that are left out. The story of Cain and Abel is one of the left outs. And that is a real loss to us. When we, when we do not reread this story, if we do not engage the story, it likely sticks in our memory as, as Cain was the bad guy, Cain was the evil one, Abel was the good guy, Cain killed Abel and then was punished by God, the end. But it is so much richer than that, friends. So we will return to the text today and attempt to be virtuous readers, readers who approach this Bible story with humility and compassion. And in so doing, we may discover that we have far more in common with Cain, with Cain than we thought. And perhaps we have something to learn from him and something to learn about God from this story. You can perhaps imagine why this story was left out. Do we really want to hear about a brother killing a brother, the first murder? And yet, it is a story that tells us a truth about ourselves. We read this story of this family and we find that family relationships were fraught, were fraught from the beginning. If we have siblings or cousins, we know what it is to feel jealous to compete for attention, to feel less valued or less worthy. Cain and Abel tell us about human nature, that there is no perfect family. So I'm reading this morning from the Jewish Publication Society's Tanakh translation, which is a translation of the Hebrew Bible that comes out of the Masoretic tradition. And so the reason for that is because it differs from the translation that you will find in your pew Bibles and in most English translations. 
The Old Testament uh, in the Bibles that you hold in your hands come from the Latin translation of the Hebrew text, but there is also a very ancient Greek translation. And where there is a difference, the translator will sometimes follow that Greek translation. So all that is to say that there is, there is a gap in the story. There is a missing conversation that is filled in in the Greek translation and therefore in most of the English translations. And so if you're following along, you may notice it, but I'm also gonna talk about it later in the sermon. So here now, God's word to us. This is from Genesis chapter four, verses one through 16. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gained a man with the help of the Lord. And then she bore his brother Abel. Abel became a keeper of the sheep. Cain became a tiller of the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil. And Abel, for his part, brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. The Lord paid heed to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering, he paid no heed. And Cain was much distressed and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you distressed and why has your face fallen? Surely, if you do right, there is uplift. But if you do not do right, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is toward you, yet you can be its master. Cain said to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain said upon his brother Abel, and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, what have you done? Hark, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. If you till the soil, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall become a ceaseless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear since you have banished me this day from the soil and I must avoid your presence, become a restless wanderer on the earth. Anyone, anyone who meets me may kill me. The Lord said to him, I promise if anyone kills Cain, sevenfold vengeance shall be taken on him. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. And Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Cain is the golden boy, born first to his parents, which gives him status and privileges. He even follows in his father's footsteps putting his hand to the plow as a tiller of the soil, a farmer. But more than that, his mother exclaims when he is born that she has got herself a man, in my favorite translation, she has got herself a man, not a child, with the help of the Lord. Cain's brother comes along Abel, but this does not affect Cain's status. Even Abel's name means breath or nothingness. 
Cain brings to God an offering of his crops, and he goes first, which is right. Abel brings the first offspring of his flock of animals. And then, just like that, everything is wrong. The text tells us that God looks with favor on Abel's offering, and does, but does not look with favor on Cain's. And Cain is devastated and angry. And so here's the thing that I find so fascinating about this moment in the story. We are not told in any way how Cain knew that he was not favored by God. And even if Cain knew in a concrete way that God had not favored his offering, there is no explanation in the text about why. Did God not like Cain? Was Cain not faithful enough? Was Cain evil from birth? Did God just like shepherds better than farmers? It is a mystery. It is a mystery. And Cain cannot accept that God would work in ways that he cannot understand. What is happening in the heart of Cain is the same thing that happens to us when we suddenly discover that the world does not always operate the way that we think it should. When someone else gets the award, wins the race, gets the grades, gets the job, wins the boy or the girl, gets into that school, buys that big expensive thing. We have our own moments of feeling like God is smiling down on someone else and it is not as it should be. If we have ever cried out that the world is unfair, life is unfair, that others have gifts and abilities that they don't deserve and that we should have, if we've ever felt pain at someone else's success, then we have known what it is like to be Cain. God sees Cain sees that he is angry, but offers no explanation, which makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if this experience of being unfavored was entirely in Cain's mind, in his perception of the world and what he thought he was owed. God instead offers him guidance, saying to Cain, this is my paraphrase, this is a moment of decision for you, Cain. This is a turning point. You can choose what is good and right. You can do the right thing and you can get back to work. Or you can choose to wallow in this envy you feel, this anger you feel, and let it consume you until you do something that you cannot undo. Sin is waiting at the door, God says, waiting to consume you if you will give it the opening. And here is where the difference in the translations matters in what Cain does next, how Cain responds. We read in, in many translations that Cain immediately invited his brother out to a field to murder him. Cold, premeditated, envy destroying what it envies. But in the original Hebrew, there is a gap. It says, Cain said to his brother Abel, 
and then we are not told what they speak about. And into that gap, into that space, steps the reader, steps us. Into that gap, we can imagine, we can imagine what words were spoken, what words we would have said, words that we have said, perhaps words we wish we had not spoken. Envy has lots of ways of showing up in our speech, showing up in our lives. We feel offended at the, the talents or successes or good fortunes of others. We make everything, everything into a competi competition that we need to win. We take pleasure in other people's difficulties and failures. We read false motives into others' behavior we belittle others to their face or behind their back. We make false accusations. We collect and then retell gossip. We tease and bully and ridicule. We compare and undermine and judge. Whatever words that Cain says to Abel and whatever Abel may have said back, it doesn't change envy into love. Cain lets this envy grow inside him into something far worse, violence, violence against his family. And that, that is perhaps the caution, the teaching for us. When we are envious, our love for ourselves is based on being better than others. I want to repeat that. When we are envious, our love for ourselves is based on being better than others. So how do we keep this envy, this anger, this judgment of others from consuming us and drawing us deeper? The opposite of envy is love. Love which seeks the good of others and rejoices when they have it. One of the recommendations on how to push back against envy from Glittering Vices, the, the book on the seven deadly sins that we studied this past Lent, the rec recommendation on how to push back against envy is to do small acts of love, to do good, as God tells Cain, to do small acts of love and service in ways that will go largely unnoticed, that won't win you acclaim, that won't win you awards or attention. You are making the world a little less unfair for someone else, and perhaps that is what will tip the scales in our own hearts. In the end, this story is not really about Cain or Abel or even us. It is a story about God. God who sees Cain, God who sees Cain, who loves Cain even when he is angry and resentful, God who speaks to Cain and offers him guidance even though he doesn't take it, God whose punishment of Cain is still incredibly merciful. Cain is not sentenced to death but to a life of a wanderer. And when Cain is afraid of being attacked, 
when he is away from the safety of God and his family, God gives him a mark of protection. Cain is both a sinner and saved, both lost and under God's protection, and so are we, and so are we. This is the God that we come together to worship. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now, friends, go in safety, for you cannot go where God is not. Go now in love, for love alone endures. Go with purpose, and God will honor your dedication. Go now in peace, for it is the gift of God to those whose hearts and minds are in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>